Well, good morning. How you guys doing today? Fantastic. It is a uh, privilege to be with you here this morning. It's a privilege to be here as a partner in ministry, as a part of the Bridges family. Um, I'm just stunned at God's goodness and graciousness to me and to my family. And so, privilege to be here today. Uh, as Ron mentioned, my name is Max Critchfield. I'm the new high school pastor here at Bridges Community Church. It's a joy to be with you today. Um, last week, Pastor Ron talked about our identity and uh, who we are, which is, is kind of the foundation that the rest of our life rests on. And just like with a house, it doesn't matter how large or majestic or expensive it is. Um, if the foundation has problems, you and I are just one disaster away from collapse. So we have to be sure that our ultimate sense of identity and significance doesn't rest on the shifting sands of our accomplishments or our employment status or our Facebook status or what other people think about us or what we do or don't have. Instead, we have to be sure that our life rests on the rock, on the unchanging word of who Jesus says that we are. Amen? Feel free to toss out an amen or preach if you want to today. That's fine. Appreciate that. Um, In the words of a guy named Louis Giglio, he says that we need to be able to say in our heart of hearts, I am who the great I am says I am. I think that if we can believe that in our hearts, powerful things happen. Because you and I, we were sinners separated from a holy God. Until by grace, we were rescued. We were saved. We were made new in Jesus Christ. In fact, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's a precious truth. I love the emphasis, kind of the exclamation point that this scripture puts on it. It says that we're called children of God, and then he kind of underlines that and says that's what we are and will always be because of the power of God. Answering the question of who we are in the light of the truth of the gospel is absolutely central and foundational for life and also for everything that's going to follow in this series that we're in right now. And so building on that foundation, we're talking this morning about security, okay? About making our homes, our relationships, our circles of influence, whatever, wherever we touch the lives of others, places of safety and security for the people that God supernaturally and strategically places in our lives. I want you to think about a place or, or, or a person that you feel safe with. Or, or think about a place where you feel at home. Those emotions, those connections are strong, aren't they? On a deep level, safety and security are things that you and I want, that we long for, that we need. And maybe that question produces mixed or or negative emotions for you because of people or places in your life where maybe you felt profoundly unsafe or unwelcome. Maybe with the people that you longed for connection with and love from the most. Maybe you're here this morning in the place where you live, your home environment is decidedly unsafe. And maybe if you're being honest, you might be one of the reasons for why that is. 
But no matter where we are, our confident belief and declaration is that there's hope. Because you can do it. You can change. And he can help. In fact, he must help if change is going to happen. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text today. But before we get there, let's look at the, uh, the thought, the setup thought that's at the beginning, the top of your outline, and it's going to kind of set the table for us today. And there's actually a typo in it, and that's my fault. But uh, here's what it should say. When I am safe and secure in who I am says I am, I can and will be a source of safety and security for others. But work is required. Okay, when I am safe and secure in who I am says I am, I can and will be a source of safety and security for others, but work is required. Or maybe more specifically, working out is required. Do you work out? Maybe that question makes you feel uncomfortable or insecure. I'm not trying to do that since this is about security today. <laughs> maybe you had a New Year's resolution to exercise more and that's already failed. Um, and you're feeling bad about it. (laughs) I don't ask this question to make you guilty. I ask this question about working out because the Bible says that working out is something that we should do. And I'm not talking about going to a CrossFit class. In fact, you fitness enthusiasts out there might find it interesting to note that if you were to look up workout in the Bible, it would bring you to the text that we're looking at today. But although the Bible does affirm the value of caring for our bodies, the working out that we're going to be talking about today does not have to do with spin classes or barbells. But it is about working out something. So let's look together at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. It'll be up here on the screen, or you can follow along in the Bible in your pew or that you brought with you. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Let's read together. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Amen. Let's look a little more closely at our text here today. Paul, he's writing to the church at at Philippi. He calls them his dear friends, and he tells them to do something incredibly important and significant here. He tells them to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does this phrase mean anyway? But what does it mean for us to work out our salvation? Surely it doesn't mean that we're to work for our salvation, right? Because Paul tells us elsewhere in the book of Ephesians that it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So what does it mean to work out our salvation? I think there's a lot of things that we could say about this. But I want to put it to you this way, and this is the first blanks on your outline. I believe Paul is telling the Philippians and us that working out our salvation means, among other things, becoming what we already are. Working out our salvation means, among other things, becoming 
what we already are. Paul is telling us here that we, as God's people, have been saved. We've been rescued. We've been made new. And now we must do the work of working out the implications, the realities of that salvation. But what does that look like? A few years back, my, uh, <clears throat> my mother-in-law had a flood in her house, which, among other things, messed up some of her uh, hardwood flooring. So uh, the insurance company replaced it, but usually they, they match it all together. And so they pulled up a bunch of flooring that was still good that she didn't need anymore. And so <clears throat> she very generously gave the flooring to my wife and I. So I went down to her house. I, I loaded it all up in the back of my truck. And I unloaded it into my garage, and it sat there for years, (laughs) for a really long time. Now, um, enter my pregnant wife, okay? She's getting pretty far along in her pregnancy, and she's starting to feel that that nesting instinct, okay? And so she says to me, hey, do you think, you know, maybe sometime before the baby comes that you could install that floor? (laughs) And I'm thinking, like, man, that's a big project. Um, (laughs) I got a lot going on, Um, (laughs) But you don't say no to a pregnant lady. So after months of uh, putting it off and putting it off, I finally realized that, hey, if it doesn't happen now, it's not going to happen, all right? So <clears throat> I blocked off a weekend to get it done, and, and we did. And so the first floor of our house, um, it used to look like this, back here on the screen. And, um, and after some work, it looked like this. Yeah. Not too shabby, right? Pretty good. But think about this. Why was work required? I, I already had the floor, right? I'd received it as a gift from my mother-in-law, but I wasn't experiencing it. I wasn't experiencing the reality of it. And I wouldn't until I decided to do the work of ripping up the old and very nasty carpet and laying this beautiful new floor in its place. Why tell this story? Because I think that in many ways for us as individuals, as families, and as a community, the salvation that we have received as a gift from God is sitting in the garage of our lives collecting dust. Why is that? Because you and I have kept putting off the project of working out this glorious truth that we are new creations. We're children of God. And we're content to live with the nasty carpet of a life that's untouched by the lordship of Jesus. Here's the thing, and this is the second point on your outline. If our salvation goes unrealized, unworked out, we will continue to be characterized by our junk, by our hang-ups, our insecurities, instead of the character of Christ. If our salvation goes unrealized, unworked out, we will continue to be characterized by our junk, by our hang-ups, by our insecurities, instead of the character of Christ. But what then does this working out look like? How does this relate to becoming people who create security and safety and blessing for people around us? Let's look again at our passage. Uh, Paul's immediate application of this truth for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, look at what he says in verse 14. He says, Do everything without grumbling, or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, 
then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? When we have this deep and rich, kind of powerful theological command to work out our salvation. And then Paul's first example of what this looks like is, stop complaining. Stop arguing. Now, all of us, and maybe parents especially, would love for complaining and arguing to be eliminated from our lives. Maybe especially in the car. Um, How much more peaceful life would be, right? But this is no small matter. This is a big deal. Remember, Paul is writing not to an individual. He's writing to a church, the church at Philippi. And, and, And look again at what he says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. A few verses earlier in Philippians 2, it says in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What does this tell us? That apparently the words and attitudes of the members of the church at Philippi were a problem. A problem to the point that they were hindering, it was hindering their witness as God's people in their community. Selfish ambition, conceit, complaining, unhealthy arguing. These were a problem for the church at Philippi and they're problems for us today, aren't they? And that brings us to our third key. That the character of our words and attitudes is vital to our witness. The character of our words and attitudes is vital to our witness. Oftentimes, it's the words we use and our attitudes towards our spouses, our children, our friends, our coworkers, our teammates, our extended families that either produce safety and security or profound insecurity. And the witness of the scriptures is unanimous that words have tremendous power. Let's just look briefly at a, at a sampling of that, just from the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 15.1, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In Proverbs 29.20, it says, Do you see someone who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Ouch. You ever spoken in haste before? It says, You're worse off than a fool. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. It's profound, isn't it? Now, I've never been pierced by a sword before. I'm grateful for that. Maybe you're here today and you have. Um, I'm sorry. But um, I have had honeycomb. For several years, my dad here in the Newark, Fremont area was a beekeeper. And I miss those days because honey is expensive, right? You try to buy that stuff, like local honey, it's like $30 for a jar this big, right? Um, But we had five-gallon buckets full of honey. And when it came time to harvest it, my dad would put on the suit. And uh, he'd go over to the hives. He'd pull out the frames. They're just dripping with honey. And he'd give me a piece of honeycomb to chew on, right? To get the honey out of. And it was good. And think about that contrast here. What words spoken graciously and with wisdom are like 
Honeycomb, he says, diffusing wrath, bringing healing and hope. While reckless and hasty words stir up strife and anger, can even cut us to the bone. That's heavy. Let's think for a second about our worlds. Maybe the homes that we grew up in or the homes that we're living in now or the workplace or the school environment we inhabit. I would imagine that whether or not those places feel safe and secure or not has a lot to do with the way that people speak to each other, right? But Jesus tells us that words are not just a surface issue. They're a heart issue. Look at what Jesus says in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, as he's criticizing the Pharisees for their unclean hearts. He says to them, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the NIV, it says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's convicting, isn't it? Whatever is in here, whether it's insecurity, whether it's bitterness, whether it's anger, or whether it's joy and peace, contentment with God, that's what's going to come out of here eventually. And that, in large part, is going to determine whether you and I create safety and security or we don't, wherever we are. So what does this mean for creating a secure place for those around us, whether our children, our spouses, our friends? It means that we have working out here to do. And so what I want to give us now is a workout routine, okay? It's not the P90X. It's not insanity. But it's, it's, a, it's a routine of questions that we can ask for helping us become the people that God wants us to be, people who create safety and security for those around us. Because it has to happen here before it comes out of us and into the world, Okay? So um, let's take a look at the first of these three questions. Here's the first one, okay? Number one is, do I forgive in the same way that God has forgiven me? Do I forgive in the same way that God has forgiven me? This This is where we live as followers of Jesus, that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us, Amen. There's no life if that isn't true. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But here's the sad truth that I often see in my life and I imagine you see in yours sometimes. For for all the forgiveness, it's the shower of mercy that we receive from God, we often do not show that same kind of forgiveness and mercy to others, do we? And if we want our children, our friends, our spouses, those around us to find a safe place with us, that will not happen if we don't seek to forgive in the same way that we're forgiven. Okay? How many of us, when we're wronged, we cling to bitterness or vindictiveness or passive-aggressive manipulation or sulking or guilting or shaming Or maybe just giving someone the cold shoulder. All the while, we're people who, through Jesus Christ, have been forgiven a thousand times over. You guys remember that parable that Jesus told about the two servants in Matthew 18? 
<clears throat> there's one servant, he goes to his master, he owes this huge debt, I think it's 10,000 talents, which is a lot, okay? Never could have repaid it. And uh, he goes to the master, and he just th- throws himself before him, he begs for mercy, for forgiveness, and the master gives it to him. And so, obviously, he's quite happy, and he's walking out of his meeting with the master, and he sees one of his buddies who owes him 20 bucks by comparison, okay? And he grabs him. And I think it's interesting because the servant says the exact same thing to him that that servant just said to his master. But he says to him, I'm not going to forgive you until you pay me back the last penny. And if you've read that parable, you know the master isn't happy about that. If the sacrifice of true and complete forgiveness and mercy is at the heart of who God is, does that define us? The way that we forgive our children, the people around us. If it doesn't, then there's working out to do for you and me. That's the first thing. Number two is this. Do I treat others with the same tenderness and compassion that God shows to me? Do I treat others with the same tenderness and compassion that God shows to me? There's a little story in, um, in the Gospels when Jesus is coming over the hill um, he comes and looks out over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, the, this place, you, you killed the prophets. How I longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. I, I love that picture there of Jesus's heart. It's just this, uh, it conveys the sense of tenderness, of, of condescension, of Jesus stooping down, coming to our level and saying, I love you so much. You matter to me. You're precious. I want to gather you to myself. Just think about the word compassion for a second. That, that word passion, usually, when we talk about that, we're talking about something we're excited about. But passion has another meaning, and, and that's suffering. Suffering. You remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ? It wasn't talking about Jesus' interest in woodworking, right? It was talking about his suffering, that he would go to the cross, that he would be spit on and scorned because of his love for us, for the glory of God. And so when we take passion and that prefix, come passion with suffering with. To have compassion means that we're willing to enter into the suffering, the hurt of others, and be there with them. That we, we don't stand off aloof and indifferent, but we draw near. We come close. When God looked upon us, when we were lost in suffering and sin, he didn't just shout down from heaven, hey, keep your chin up. I'm I'm sending positive thoughts your way. Um, After I'm done sending this email, I'll uh, spend some time with you. It wasn't like that, right? In John 1, it says that he took on flesh and he made his dwelling. He moved into our neighborhood. He said, I'm coming to you. He drew near. In my family, with my daughter Joy, Victoria Joy is her full name, she's two, my heart's earnest desires that whatever hurt she's feeling, whatever question she's wrestling with, whatever trial she's enduring, she'd know that I'm never too busy. Papa is never too busy to enter into her world and be with her. Man, I hope that can be true of me. Look, Look in the mirror and think about that. Do my children believe that? Does my spouse believe that? Do my friends believe that? 
Or am I too busy to be bothered? Or am I too hardened to care truly about the hurt of others? Do the words I use in my home, at my school, in my workplace, overflow out of a heart that's overwhelmed by the tender compassion of God toward me forever in Jesus? Or is it a heart that's cold and unchanged by that amazing love? If that's the case, there's working out to do. That's the second thing. The third one is this. If Jesus is full of grace and truth, am I becoming a more gracious and truthful person? If Jesus is full of grace and truth, am I becoming a more gracious and truthful person? I mentioned John 1 just a moment ago, and and this idea of grace and truth comes from John 1 also. In fact, the same verse where it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's a powerful phrase. That there's little hints of grace sprinkled throughout our culture. In music, we have grace notes. Um, Masterful dancers are graceful. When we don't pay our bills on time, which I do often, there's a grace period, right? But the sad thing is that you and I don't have to look far in our culture, in our world, to see that ungraciousness is just about everywhere that we look. And maybe the hard truth is that we don't have to look further than our own homes to see that, or maybe even our own noses. Here's a big idea. If if you and I have been rescued by and believe in a gracious God, and we are not becoming more gracious people, There's a problem. There's a problem. Do do you know people that are gracious in in a deep way? Just, man, that's a gracious person. I don't know about you, but I am drawn to them. I want to spend time with them. I want to get to know their family. I want to hang out at your house. There's something about that that draws us. And that's what drew people to Jesus. Full of grace and truth. And when I say gracious, I'm not talking about a toothless permissiveness that just says that everything's okay. That, that's not what it looks like to be a good parent, to be a good friend, to be a good coworker. Being people of grace doesn't mean that we ignore the truth or that we don't discipline our kids when they do something wrong. Because without truth, grace is empty. It doesn't mean anything. But being gracious does change the way that we hold that truth, the way that we share it with others. How blessed you and I are today that our perfect Savior is full of grace and truth. And the question is, are those same things filling our hearts, changing us, and then overflowing out of us in our words, in our actions, in our discipline, in our conversations, creating safety and security and peace for those around us? And if it isn't, then there's work to do. And if you're here and you feel like God might be calling you to create, help create a safe and secure place here at Bridges for the children of our church to encounter Jesus, I would love to talk with you about that. Because our high school ministry, our middle school ministry, our children's ministries, without the support of this church, they can't and won't exist. 
So if you want to come on this journey with us, I'd love to talk with you. And as we bring things to a close this morning, I want to leave you with this question. Are you willing to work with the God who is working in you to become who he longs for you to be? Are you willing to work with the God who is working in you to become who he longs for you to be? Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed or convicted by all the work that needs to happen in our hearts and lives to look more like the person that God made you to be. Maybe you're thinking, man, I am not very gracious with my kids. Hasty words every day. That's my middle name. Um, My insecurities about who I am are creating insecurity for my kids, for my spouse, and I don't know how to stop. I'm about as tender and compassionate as a block of wood. Um, I have a hard time forgiving people, maybe because of people that I refuse to forgive that have hurt me deeply in my own life. I just can't find it in myself to let go. If you're here this morning and that's you, then God has you and me right where he wants us. Look with me again at our scripture for this morning, Philippians 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? Paul tells us how to do this working out here in verse 12. He says, with fear and trembling, a sense of reverence and awe at the power of God. Why? He tells us in verse 13, because it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember that picture of my floor I showed you earlier? I'll tell you this. I never could have done that by myself. I had no idea where to start. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the power. And so I sought out the people who could help me lay it out, who knew what they were doing, who could work it out with me. And the result was something beautiful. If you're here today and you've placed your trust in Jesus, you're not alone. God isn't finished with you yet, with you or with me, and I praise him for that. As we seek to be people who are working out the reality that we're new, that we've been rescued that we're forever secure and beloved, freed and redeemed. We do it with the knowledge that God is with us, before us, beside us, within us, shaping us into people full of grace and truth, creating through us places of safety and security in our homes and relationships so that we as a church and as families can shine brightly in the darkness with the light of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't begun a relationship with Jesus yet. Maybe you've been living in insecurity and fear despite the facade that you've created for yourself and you've heard about this man, Jesus, today and you've said, I want that. I want a hope. I want a firm foundation for my life, for my family. If that's you today, it starts with the ABCs. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner, separated 
from the God that made you for him. B, believe. Believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life with him. And then C, change. Change direction, literally repent. Leave your life of sin and self-centeredness behind and start on the path of following Jesus today. If that's you, we'd love to meet with you, to pray with you. Uh, We'll be out in the lobby in the Welcome Center. And if today is the day that you place your trust in Jesus Christ, we wanna celebrate with you. Here's the truth. You and I are a piece of work. That's real. But we are God's piece of work. And there is working out to do. And we have a great and mighty God at work in us. Are you ready to get to work? I hope you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no one like you who takes what is dead, what is broken, what is lost, what is forgotten, and you make it new again. No one here this morning is too far. We are a step away from the God who made us for himself. And we can forever find a place of security and hope and power with you. And for those of us who've already made that decision, we've placed our trust in you. God, would you help us today to work out just exactly what that means, that we would be people characterized by radical forgiveness, by tenderness and compassion, by grace and truth. God, we can't do it without you. You must help us, but we must do the work. We must decide, God, I don't wanna just be the same person a year from now that I am today, but you've rescued me. You've given me this gift. And I pray I would put it to use to become a person through which you can change the world. Thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for the hope, the life we have in you, Jesus. There's no one like you. We give you praise and glory today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.